Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On today's program, Alert will be playing for you the thoughts and perspectives on the Israel-Palestine situation by Israeli journalist Amira Haas, recorded from a September 30th talk at the University of Winnipeg. Here are the alert headlines for the week of October 6, 2011. Occupy Wall Street protesters were subject to mass arrests on the Brooklyn Bridge last Saturday. Reports indicate between 500 and 700 demonstrators were arrested. Protesters feel tricked by the police. Some say they were led onto the bridge by police only to be penned and arrested, while others say only those in the front of the crowd could hear the police warnings about occupying the bridge. The Occupy Wall Street movement has grown this past week with increased support in New York and solidarity protests across the country. The New York Transit Workers Union and the Airline Pilots Association are among those new supporters. Unions in Portugal organized a demonstration last Saturday protesting the government's austerity measures. Earlier this year, Portugal received a 78 billion euro bailout to avoid bankruptcy. The EU and IMF stipulated that in return for the money, Portugal must implement measures unions and protesters are describing as, quote, threatening to jobs, workers, pensioners, and social rights. Rally organizers estimated over 130,000 supporters attended the demonstration. A Supreme Court of Canada ruling late last week allows Vancouver's drug injection clinic Insight to remain open. The 9-0 decision declares the clinic to be exempt from prosecution from the federal government, noting how the clinic increases safety for its users and decreases the spread of disease. The federal conservatives are strongly opposed to the Insight Clinic and other harm reduction strategies and have said they will review the Supreme Court's decision. Jason Kenney took to the pages of the National Post last week to further misrepresent the Conservatives' immigration policy, Bill C-4. The article presents the bill within the context of targeting human trafficking while alluding to scenarios of immigrants taking advantage of Canada's generosity and closes by describing Canada as the world's doormat. Kenny singled out the group No One Is Illegal as one of the radical organizations he accuses of distorting Canada's recent immigration policy restructuring. Chilean students demanding a new public education framework have been demonstrating for five months and last week agreed to talks with the government. The Confederation of Chilean Student Federations has been the main organizer of the protest and is calling for free, democratized education in Chile. Classes in many schools and universities have been put on hold since the demonstrations began. This is the longest protest movement in Chile since Pinochet's military dictatorship ended in 1990. Israel has agreed to the quartet proposal to resume peace negotiations. The proposal came about one week after Palestine submitted a statehood bid at the UN General Assembly. The U.S. vowed early on to veto the bill, saying independence should result from negotiations. It is no surprise, then, that this quartet includes the United States, along with the European Union, Russia, and the United Nations. Just as Israel agreed to resume negotiations, the Israeli government approved the construction of 1,100 housing units in the illegally occupied East Jerusalem. 
Those are the alert headlines for the week of October 6, 2011. Now for Around the Left for the week of October 6, 2011. The third international festival of poetry of resistance will take place October 14th to 16th in Toronto. A donation of $15 is requested for the admission ticket and dinner at the opening event on Friday. Otherwise, all events are free of charge. Saturday, we'll have an open mic night to welcome new participants. For more information, visit poetryofresistance.org or email resistancepoetryfest at yahoo.ca. Planet or Death, Climate Justice versus Climate Change is a series of study sessions taking place in Toronto over the fall. Based on the ideas of the 2010 Cochabamba Conference, these study sessions aim to prepare for the December 2011 climate justice events in Durban, South Africa. The third session, Act on Climate Change or Ignore It, will take place on Sunday, October 16th in room 5280 at the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education. For more information, email boliviaclimatejustice at gmail.com or visit the blog www.t.grupoapoyo.org. The tough-on-illegals and tough-on-crime approach of the Harper Conservative majority government are intrinsically linked. Prisons and detention centers disproportionately target low-income, indigenous, migrant, and racialized communities who are already over-surveyed and over-incarcerated. On October 16th, from 6.30 p.m. to 9.30 p.m., join No One is Illegal Vancouver, Coast Salish Territories, and Streams of Justice for a free public forum and discussion at the Grandview Calvary Baptist Church, 1803 East 1st Avenue. For more information, email noii-van at resist.ca or call 778-552-2099. On Thursday, October 20th, from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., Winnipeg's FemRev Collective is organizing a Take Back the Night march. Take Back the Night is an annual international event to resist violence against women and children. Everyone is welcome. March location to be decided. For more information, email tbtnwinnipeg at gmail.com or for a link to the Facebook event, check out the event section at canadiandimension.com. On October 22nd, from 1 o'clock p.m. to 4 o'clock p.m. in Montreal, attend the second annual commemorative vigil and march for those who have lost their lives at the hands of the police. The purpose of the march is to remember these victims of police violence and abuse and support their families in any way we can. The family-led and family-friendly march and vigil will begin in front of the Police Brotherhood, 480 Guilford Street, Laurier Metro, St. Joseph Exit, for a link to the Facebook event, check out the event section at CanadianDimension.com. The School of Communication at Simon Fraser University, OpenMedia.ca, and the Vancouver Public Library present Media Democracy Day Vancouver 2011, taking place November 11th to 13th at various locations throughout the city. This year will feature keynote speakers, interactive panels, and hands-on workshops focused on critical analysis of media policy, citizen and alternative media production, and the transformation of the media system to make it more diverse and representative. All events are free and open to the public, but seating is limited. For more information or to v register, visit Media Democracy Day 
dot event bright b r i t e dot com. Class dismissed. Capital's war on workers and democracy is the Parkland Institute's fall conference of 2011. It will take place November 18th to 20th at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. The conference will explore the current attack on workers and unions, the accompanying attack on democracy, and how capital is working to hinder real action to protect our common environment. For more information, please visit parklandinstitute.ca slash fallconference2011. That was Around the Left for the week of October 6, 2011. Alert now brings you a special broadcast of a talk by Amira Haas, Israeli journalist and correspondent for the Israeli-based newspaper Haaretz. The daughter of Holocaust survivors, Amira Haas was born in Jerusalem in 1956. She studied Nazism and the European left's relation to the Holocaust at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. She began her journalistic career as a staff editor for Haaretz in 1989, She started to report from the occupied Palestinian territories in 1991. Remarkable for being one of the few Jewish-Israeli journalists to live full-time in occupied Palestine, Amira Haas has won multiple awards for her writing accounts of the Middle East conflict that are sympathetic to the Palestinian perspective. Her books include Drinking the Sea at Gaza, Days and Nights in a Land Under Siege, and Reporting from Ramallah, an Israeli journalist in an occupied land. Last July, she was one of only a handful of journalists who rode on the French yacht Dignité al-Karama, the only boat in the flotilla to Gaza, able to leave a Greek port and approach Gaza. The speech you are about to hear was recorded on September 30th at the University of Winnipeg. Miss Haas was on a cross-Canada tour sponsored by Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East and by the faith-based group Kairos. Here... This outstanding journalist opens by speaking about her reflections of the Egyptian uprisings last spring and about the recent uprisings by Israelis against the country's neoliberal policies. If someone told me back then that hundreds of thousands of Israelis will go to the streets and demand social justice, I would have raised a brow. But there it was, starting last July, Israeli young and less young citizens spilled out collectively their grievances. It started with uh, complaints about the high cost of living. Educated middle-class youngsters who realized that they were worse off than their parents were in their age in terms of economical security and job opportunities. These were the people who went out to the streets at first. At first it sounded like grievances of spoiled kids. But very soon, they developed in, these grievances developed into a collect, collective realization that it's not just the cost of living. These demonstrators realized that it is a system which has declared successful war so far against the welfare state and brought the society back to the years of wild capitalism when health, education, and decent housing were privileges of upper classes a system where people are evaluated as items in the budget balance of a businessman, not as human beings. A mass movement grew in Israel, practically demanding the Israeli government to abandon its neoliberal policies 
and to build back a welfare state. Where taxation is progressive, the social services are given equally regardless of people's wealth or poverty, and social mutual responsibility is at the basis of all relationships. This is, it sounds a dream, but people say it's not a dream, it's realizable. This is the call now among uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of Israelis. It was exciting to march with those thousands of, uh, hundreds of thousands of Israeli protesters. I, of one Saturday after the other, I of course joined uh, the block of the left wing with uh, Palestinians and uh, uh, Jews from Arab countries. We marched together. Uh, it was marvelous to walk through the hundreds of protest tents that were uh, erected in several cities and people stayed there for days at stretch, actually for two months almost. Like in Egypt, it was clear that change does not occur overnight. Still, it was lovely to see the people liberating the public sphere and collectively developing the rebellious wisdom and creativity that were so vivid in, G in Egypt. The people demand social justice became the catchy slogan that everybody repeated. One cannot be cynical when hundreds of thousands chant such a slogan. In some places, thanks to the conscious participation of left-wing activists, this demand addressed also the rights of Palestinians who are Israeli citizens. The public space uh, where the protest took place allowed for the first time in years for open discussions about the systematic discrimination of Israeli citizens, Palestinian Israeli citizens, who are actually seventh-rate seventh citizens. And still it is, and that's why it is so striking how the great majority of those sincere protesters, very lovely, very beautiful, who made an amazing educational leap in the course of a few weeks, consciously refused to address the reality of Israeli occupation. And refused to add to their demands for social justice, a demand to end this occupation, and a demand to respect Palestinians' demands for their social and national rights. The refusal was tangible, one could touch it. Uh, one could touch the embarrassment of, of uh, demonstrators who felt you were right when you said, well, but where, what about social justice of Palestinians? but they didn't want to speak about it. During the weeks of protests, many left-wing activists, as I said, joined the others and used this and engaged in discussions and educational sessions, trying to explain, to convince, to uh, say the obvious, that the two cannot be separated. Intuitively, right-wingers sensed that the protest and the call for equality have a potential to undermine nationalistic moods and reasoning. And at first spoke those left, uh, right-wingers spoke ferociously against the protesters. It was uh, a very lovely also, it was a very lovely experience. They immediately associated themselves with a uh, 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 reaction when those demonstrations started. They blamed the demonstrators for being Political, God forbid, as if social uh, economical equality is not a political demand, uh, 
or they blamed the demonstrators uh, or spoke with uh, spite or with pity that they were being manipulated behind the scene by Israeli communists or anarchists. This uh, activist that go to Belain and Alin and uh, together with Palestinians demonstrate against uh, the Israeli army. Um, later on, some right-wingers, they felt that they were losing the crowd. So uh, some of them, including settlers of the most racist kind, tried to join the party to pretend that they are also for social justice and claimed that the solution to Israel's housing problems lies, of course, in the colonies in the occupied territory, in the Palestinian occupied territory. I must say that they were not too successful. They were not... Uh, reaching the hearts of uh, the masses. And yet, this intelligent entity of, of uh, protesters continued to refuse to connect social injustice with the occupation. We'll fulfill our duty if we are uh, called now to the military reserve service, so said one of the student leaders during a short period of escalation that there was in, uh, in the border with Gaza following a, an attack, uh, an armed attack against Israeli civilians in the south of the country. The intelligent entity of protesters who knew so well to challenge and defy the official versions about the economical situation accepted the official version of the same leaders where it comes to the Palestinians. Uh, the explanation to this apparent contradiction is very, very simple. And it's a painful uh, explanation. The Israeli Jewish citizens, some six million now, profit from the reality of occupation and from the continued conflict with the Palestinians, from this low fire or low intensity conflict with the Palestinians. In other words, the, all, Israeli Jew, all Jewish Israeli citizens uh, have gotten used to the privileges that are endowed to them, to us, as Jews. By privilege, I mean a right which is denied from one and given to the other. It is something that could have been natural if it were given universally to all, but it is mutilated because it's given only to some and on, based on ethnic, here on ethnic uh, lines. Most Israeli Jews are unable to separate those privileges, basic privileges, from their status as citizens, their status of citizenship. It's tragic that also most of, most, also most of the uh, underprivileged or, un, uh, or, or most exploited groups in the Israeli Jewish society, for example, or marginalized groups, for example, Im immigrants from Ethiopia or Jews from, who originated from uh, Arab states, uh, Jewish Arab, Arab Jews, some call them, they, many of them refuse to be called so, uh, or just working class, any other working class people, are part of this system of privileges. They also enjoy the privileges or the rights that are denied from the Palestinians. Their share of the cake is smaller, but nevertheless, it exists. Let me enumerate only some of those very basic, uh, only some examples to these uh, privileges, of these privileges. 
First of all, the right to emigrate to Israel-Palestine or to move and to live in Israel-Palestine. Any Jew here, and I'm, I know that there are some Jews here in this room, has the right by Israeli law of return to emigrate to Israel. It's called birthright. Um, even though it's about people who not only were not born in Israel, Palestine, but uh, I bet they cannot prove that uh, 5,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, their ancestors were born there. Um, it's about Jews who live in diaspora for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they have the birthright to live, to move to Israel, and very comfortably so. Uh, but even if we can explain this right to move to Israel in the shadow of Nazi history and the perse persecution of Jews, this right to emigrate gives instantly to any Jew in the world more rights than any Palestinian who was born in this country or whose parents were born in this country. First of all, any Palestinian who was born and does not live there does not have the right. Many of them don't even have the right to visit the country, let alone live there or move and, and live there and settle there. There are people, Palestinians in, in uh, Lebanon and in Syria and in uh, Jordan, they don't have the right to go back to where their uh, biological parents were born and move back and live. <clears throat> and more than that, upon arrival, any Jew, any Jew here can come and move and live in everywhere he or she chooses in Israel proper or in the occupied territory, in the West Bank or in the cities and kibbutzim and uh, moshavim that uh, are on Palestinian land. That means he or she will immediately benefit from a system that excludes the Palestinians from the right to return. Then there is the right for housing or the privilege of housing. There are laws, institutions, open and discreet policies and uh, racist officials which make sure that any Jew, new immigrant or a veteran citizen has more housing opportunities than any Palestinian citizen or any Palestinian resident in the occupied territory. There is a legal and institutional discrimination against Palestinian citizens in Israel in the allocation of lands. This is, has a long history. It, may, it can have a whole uh, lesson in history since 48. But Israel has nationalized some 93% of the lands. It's some 20 million uh, dunams, I think. Uh, it has nationalized them, made them into national property. Uh, much of it uh, is the lands of Palestinians, lands that, that was taken from Palestinians, was expropriated from Palestinians, either, either private, private land of individuals or uh, land of villages and cities, land of people who were expelled from Israel uh, or people who still live there. By law and tricks, Palestinian Israelis have very little access to this 93%. Actually, about uh, 17 uh, or almost 20% of this 93% is actually Jewish land for, for the Jewish uh, people all over the world. Uh, 
this is the land of the that is kept and is money, uh, administered by the Jewish fund, Jewish uh, national fund. Yes, Jewish national fund. So, as an example to this, since forty-eight, since forty-eight, the Palestinian population in Israel multiplied by six times. Nevertheless, the Israeli authorities did not allow to build even one more city to, for this uh, Palestinian po population. Uh, not, even once, not even a single city was built. And at the same time, all the villages and cities where Palestinians live uh, have lost their lands for, of course, by, by official decrees, for the benefit of new Israeli cities, new Jewish neighborhoods, cities, and villages. Some 900 new residential communities were built for Jews since 48, none for Palestinians. special alert broadcast of the thoughts and perspectives of Israeli journalist and Haaretz correspondent Amira Haas on the Israel-Palestine situation recorded from a September 30th talk at the University of Winnipeg. In this talk, Ms. Haas explained the inability of many Israelis to see the injustices being perpetrated against Palestinians arises from the fact that such revelations would force Israelis to confront the privileges they enjoy being rooted in the discriminatory policies which have a direct bearing on the lifestyles and, in fact, the survival of the Palestinian people. Here is more of Amira Haas and her talk at the University of Winnipeg. The neglect of infrastructure in Palestinian areas, deliberate neglect of infrastructure in Palestinian areas, and the fact that there are tens of Palestinian in Israel, Palestinian communities that are not recognized as uh, established communities, mostly of Bedouins. Uh, it's communities who have been there since before 48, uh, but Israel did not uh, process their, uh, uh, process them as legal communities, so they are not connected to uh, water supply. They're not supplied by water. So all these hundreds of thousands of Palestinians in Israel are uh, deprived of a uh, fair share of the water. For years, Israelis have consumed water as if they lived in Switzerland. Uh, for years, we cultivated the cult or we, 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 we developed the cult of, uh, of agriculture 
as the nationalist uh, expression of our uh, being there. And uh, to the effect that agriculture today uh, maybe contributes about 3% of the GDP, while the water which goes, which we use for, the, for this agriculture, is probably 20 or 30 percent uh, of all the water in, uh, <clears throat> uh, that our, res our, sources, our resources yield, our aquifers yield. It is a great loss, and sometimes we, I, I sometimes had articles that uh, the title was Israel exports uh, water to Switzerland, because when we export uh, flowers or, uh, or, uh, or vegetables, we actually export water to countries that do not, do not, don't need, are not in lack of uh, water, don't suffer from lack of water. Um, in the past years, because of many droughts, uh, Israel are more aware, Israelis are more aware of the problem. Still, it hasn't changed the habits of use of water, the domestic use of water. Uh, there are more attempts to uh, purify water or to uh, desalinate seawater, which is very costly, and there are uh, projects of, uh, of uh, treatment of sewage water, but still the domestic use is high in an exaggerated way as it used to be. In Gaza, the situation is even much worse uh, in one way. There is water, but Gaza has been obliged since, uh, since the Oslo Agreement, since 93, actually is being treated as a separate entity, as an island to its own, not connected to the rest of the country. So they are obliged to use, and actually to overuse, to overpump the water that there is, that accumulates in the aquifer within Gaza borders, not outside Gaza borders. For example, Be'er Sheva, the city of Be'er Sheva, or any other kibbutz or, or, or moshav or Israeli uh, community in the Negev, which has less uh, precipitation, uh, receives water from the rest of the country that is brought from the north, that is brought from uh, 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 areas which are richer with, uh, with water. But Gaza, no. Gaza, what it has, it has. Cannot get more. But Gaza is part of this country. When it comes to water, political borders or state borders do not exist. There must be uh, uh, sharing of, the, of this partici uh, uh, party, uh, sharing of the water. But this is completely uh, unknown for Israeli politicians, this demand. <clears throat> That's why more than 90% of the water supplied in Gaza is not fit for drinking uh, without a process of purification, more than 90%. You probably remember, or some of you, the uh, BBC reporter who was kidnapped in Gaza in 2007, Alan Johnston. I remember very well when he was released, he said that uh, one of the most difficult things for him was the water that he was given. Because he was given the ordinary water that Palestinians in Gaza drink. And it was not, uh, it was not either purified or not the mineral water that uh, foreigners are uh, accustomed to drink in Gaza. 
So he got sick because of this water. Now imagine what happens to a uh, uh, million and a half Palestinians who drink this water even when it's purified, but uh, not all of them can afford it, not all of them are aware of this, of the necessity, and not all of them uh, reach it. And uh, just imagine how, what, how, what effects it has on their uh, health. <clears throat> this discrimination is also very visible. You go all over, both in Israel and beyond Israel, in the West Bank, and you see the lush Israeli settlements and uh, communities, and you see the arid and the dry Palestinian streets, even in villages. Uh, it's just everywhere. Um, you sometimes see in a matter of, uh, in a distance of uh, 50 meters, this difference of uh, green, the green streets of uh, Israeli communities and the totally dry uh, uh, Palestinian community where people are dependent, not, do not, are not connected to the water grid and they have to uh, buy water from a near, nearby supply uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, source and pay five times or six times for the water. If, and this is mostly the communities which can uh, least afford these uh, prices of water. So the price of water for poor communities, poor Palestinian communities, is, uh, or the, even the poorest Palestinian communities, is about five or six times more than the normal price. These were just uh, tips of the privileges that we as uh, Jews enjoy in Israel. Uh, these privileges do not, uh, are not the reason for the, or not, are not the reason, or the original reason for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But they are part of the explanation why the great majority of Israeli Jews do not feel an urgency to put an end to this conflict and accept without real questioning the official versions which explain why this conflict continues and continues and why all the blame is on the Palestinians and why it is all about security, the security of uh, Israel. The balance between Palestine and Israel is not similar to that between the Turtle Island and the US and Canada, where you succeeded as a settler uh, community, we Israeli Jews shall fail. We, the Jewish privileged upper class, are a minority in the region. The reliance on an eternal military superiority is a dangerous illusion. Many Palestinians read, have this sober reading of the situation. They are encouraged by the fact that the Jewish upper class, privileged upper class, is a minority in the region. Some say that sooner or later, this Jewish minority will disappear, will have to disappear, like all crusader communities who collapsed at the end. I remember very well, I think it's, it was one of the most um, impressive sentences, or maybe the only impressive sentence I heard from uh, a Palestinian um, politician, Saib Arikat, 
and uh, very surprising because I'm not uh, friends with him. But during the negotiations with the first Netanyahu government in 98 or 90, yeah, 98, I think, I called, to call, I called him to ask about the last meeting, which I knew was futile, but my paper wanted some lines of this futile, futile uh, meeting. And he told me those lines for about describing the futile meeting. And then he stopped being uh, the big shot. And for, for a moment, he spoke with me like, almost like a friend, even though we are not. And he said, tell me, Amira, don't Israelis think about their grandchildren? And I heard the same sentence by accident the very same week by a Palestinian uh, farmer in a village that is always attacked by nearby settlers. And after he told me, I called him to hear about the recent attack, uh, which only aggravated since then. But I called to ask him about this recent attack, and he described the dogs and the burnt trees and uh, I don't know what else. And then he said, tell me, Amira, don't Israelis think about their grandchildren? And this is a sentence that I can uh, uh, bring as a motto and I bring as a motto, oh, not only to tell about this sober analysis of the reality, but also to speak about com the compassion that uh, there is. There is compassion in this question. Uh, true, a true uh, um, liking even of, of, of the people who live in the country and are Israelis. But unfortunately, the great majority of Israelis is totally blind to this uh, attitude. And the response is yes, that the Israelis do not think about their grandchildren. So by way of ending, um, it's ironic that there are lobbies here in the US that think that they do us a favor, us Jews in Israel, by supporting the Israeli ethnocracy. Ethnocracy is uh, democracy for one ethnic group, or the rule of one ethnic group over the other. Actually, those lobbies are doing the opposite. They assist, and I should add maybe criminally assist, in endangering the future of all grandchildren in the region. Because the military superiority of Israel, in case of continued uprisings, and continued uprisings are, are a must, when you have so much oppression, you cannot, uh, sooner or later, you'll have another uprising. So in case of these continued uprisings, the military superiority of Israel can result in a Samsonian act, an act of Shimshon. Let us die with the Philistines. Thank you. We've been listening to a speech given at the University of Winnipeg on September 30th as part of a cross-Canada speaking tour called Israel-Palestine, Fear of the Future. Amira Haas is an Israeli journalist who has written on the Middle East situation from a perspective sympathetic to the Palestinian viewpoint. Amira Haas's columns are printed in the Israel-based Haaretz newspaper and can be read online at haaretz.com.
Hi, this is Mitch Pollock, and this is Music is a Weapon. This week's show is about women heroes of the left, and we're going to start today with Anne Feeney singing her song about Emma Goldman. One, two, one, two. She told me the state is my enemy. Lady on the left saying property is theft A year in the slammer couldn't keep her mouth shut J. Edgar Hoover couldn't move her from my heart I'm talking Emma, Emma, Emma Goldmine Down by deputies, 
When Fanny cried out, spare his life, they shot her down as well. And hundreds watched in horror as this fearless woman fell. Now the ones who gave the orders faced no charge of any sort. And the men who pulled the triggers were acquitted by the court. But when companies own the courthouse, justice fails for you and me. So let's work like Fanny Sellens now for true equality. A widow with four children toiling 80 hours a week Found time to fight injustice and bring power to the meek She fought with tireless energy, no duty would she shirk Though murderers have short her life, we carry on her work Though murderers have short her life, we carry on her work That was Anne Feeney singing... Fanny Sellens, and before that, that was Anne Feeney singing Emma Goldman, Two Women of the Left, sung by a great woman of the left. Utah Phillips, in a lifetime of being a songwriter and a singer, managed to tell us all kinds of stories. And sometimes he would sing, and sometimes he would just tell us a story. Here he is, talking and singing about the Colorado strike. All the patriotic troopers come a-marching down the pike, prepared to shoot the miners in the Colorado strike. With whiskey in their bellies and vengeance in their souls, they came prepared to shoot the miners full of holes. In front of those brave troopers loomed a sight you seldom see. Loomed, she was less than five feet tall, weighed less than a hundred pounds. You're going to look like that and loom, you probably ought to be somebody. In front of those brave troopers loomed a sight you seldom see. A white-haired rebel woman whose age was 83. Charge, cried the valiant captain in awful thunderous tones. And the patriotic troopers charged... And captured Mother Jones. Oh, it's great to be a trooper with a musket in your hand, prepared to do the dirty work the lords of wealth command. It's great to shoot a miner and hear his dying groans, but there never was such glory as that charge on Mother Jones. Yeah, Mother Jones was in that year referred to by President Theodore Roosevelt as the most dangerous woman in the United States, and she was 83 years old. That's some kind of dangerous. There once was a union maid who never was afraid of the goons and the gates and the company things and the deputy sheriff who made the raid. She went to the union hall when the meeting it was called and when those company boys came round she always stood her ground. No, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the
man who's the union man and joins the ladies' auxiliary. Oh, married life ain't hard if you got a union card. A union man leads a happy life if you got a union wife. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union till the day I die. We modern union maids are also Leave jobs behind, and we're not just the ladies. We'll fight for equal pay, and we will have our say. We're workers too, the same as you, and fight the union way. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union till the day I die. Hey. That was the new Harmony Sisterhood Band singing Woody Guthrie's classic, Union Made. And before that, Utah Phillips singing the Colorado Strike. I have this sneaking suspicion that I've played this song before. It's called Yuniro Marino. It's by Charlie King and Karen Brando. It's about a woman who comes from Latin America where she's been involved in the struggle. And where does she end up in North America? But involved in the struggle. It's a great song. Yaniro Marin. They laugh and they tell us the unions are dead. Now it's every man for himself. Well, here in L.A., there's a new union made. I tell you, folks, she's something else. Her name is Yanira, a daring Latina. She knows her strength and her worth. She's younger but wiser, a born organizer, the kind we call salt of the earth. Hey, Yanira, I just want to sing your name. Yanira, daughter of El Salvador. Yanina, nothing ever will be the same. Viva Yanina, Merino. They had murdered her lover for speaking his mind. She ran north across Mexico. The death squad pursued her and did some things to her I don't think that you'd want to know But her spirit's unbroken She's brave and outspoken A steady, unquenchable flame And she brought that fire To the sweatshop that hired her They'll never forget her name It's Yanira I just want to sing your name Yanira, daughter of El Salvador Yanira, nothing ever will be the 
Seven years old, two kids and no job. She hires on at a shrimp packing plant. Where the boss, he was rude. The foreman was lewd. The perks and the wages were scant. But her bright smile would shine to her friends on the line. How long, good people, how long? They can pull any crime on us one at a time. But in you. Meeting outside the packing house wall Then the five each brought four To show up at the door Of the laborers' union hall Twenty-five takes the game If they each take three names To sign up for a fight they can win Oh, it snowballed in time Till at last, eighty-nine voted yes The union was in Hey, I to sing your name. Hey, Viva, Merino. Yanira is not packing shrimp anymore. She's packing the union hall. There is nobody braver for immigrant labor. The immigrant stands for us all. So to hell with a law that would padlock the door Tell me which side are you on? I couldn't be clearer Let's side with Yanira And the courage to carry it on Hey, Yanira I just want to sing your name Yanira, daughter of El Salvador
Charlie King and Karen Brando singing Nero Marino. And that's it for this week, folks. See you soon. Solidarity. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again or hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Andrew Valpy, assisted by Selena Surik. Alert headlines by Ben Wood. Around the Left in Seven Days by Ashley Titterton. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Padala. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.